Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. This is Luke Mason. And I'm David Parker. So David, question for you. All right. What's the power of love? Oh, well, according to Interstellar, it transcends even gravity itself to send messages out to the universe. So <laughs> it's true. It's pretty powerful. <laughs> and actually, okay. uh, I was recently watching uh, the, short, the Sword in the Stone because... Oh, you did watch it. it. ...in a previous podcast. And uh, our friend... Merlin tells a young Wart, or Arthur, as he is uh, later known, that uh, love is the most powerful thing in the universe. So there you go. Even more powerful than his magic? Apparently. Uh, <laughs> I, I, if I remember that movie correctly, um, that was not something Mad Madam Mim cared too much about. No, she didn't like love at all. <laughs> so the power of love is the most powerful thing in the universe? According to Merlin, in The Sword and the Stone. So does that mean that like 95% of space is well, love probably more than well, probably <laughs> it holds us all together right i wrote uh, a poem about this once maybe i'll read it on a podcast ooh, about love well about uh what the universe is actually made up of mm, i see it had to do with uh, quantum mechanics and string theory but oh, you wrote a poem about quantum mechanics basically yeah. wow <laughs> sounds beautiful <laughs> i thought it was pretty good anyway power of love Huey Lewis and the News. As I'm sure you have guessed, we are doing Back to the Future today, one of my all-time favorite movie trilogies. And You guys may have noticed at this point that Luke is a big trilogy fan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, he, it's true. We've got, we've got Lord of the Rings. We've yeah. got Star Wars. I mean, the, the three trilogies, right? Mm-hmm. However, I was at a bit of a loss to figure out which cultural touchstone to begin with (laughs) because there are so goddamn many in this movie these movies true but i feel like that song exemplifies the energy and excitement of the movies huey lewis and the news just the power of love yes and just how upbeat it is and exciting and fun and it's kind of our secondary introduction to marty and the town of hill valley so Anyway, yeah, I'm glad yeah. to know that's what you think of the power of love. <laughs> yeah, this one, um, I've been looking forward to this recording for a very long time because Back to the Future is, not surprisingly, I suppose, holds a very strong place nostalgically to me. I actually remember, I was maybe like six or seven, one time trying to convince your mom that we should rent Back to the Future. Oh, when we were at <laughs> From, my, in Black Falls? No, probably? no, it was in Nelson one time. Oh, really? Yeah, it was my in mom. Nelson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your, yeah, so you guys were visiting. And I think I'd seen the first one before, and I was just so excited about it. And you remember how excited I got about stuff. That's true. That's true. <laughs> and so, I mean, I feel like I have a lot of my guts to spill today for Back to the Future because I think a lot of the episodes we do 
I like I'm really interested in the stories and I'm really curious to explore them intellectually and conceptually. Definitely like that's there for this one, but even more I'm excited to explore like what it's done um more for like my heart right. throughout my life. Oh yeah. You know? And I think that that's not it's not like a mystery why that might be. It's very campy. Right. <laughs> and it's very <laughs> I think I said to you yesterday I I consider Back to the Future to be the apex of cheesiness yes yes <laughs> like it's the best cheesy movie ever made movies <laughs> movies right <laughs> yes yeah it's gonna be weird uh, i'll uh, i guess just for clarity the rest of the episode if i when i say the movie i'm kind of talking about the whole story so right all three right yeah if, yeah if it's one specifically i'll make a note of that but anyway i remember watching it loving it watching it again recently loving it so we'll get all into that but do you have a, a like a first memory this is I feel like this is one of the movies where you have some sort of like first recollection of it. Man, yeah, I I my first okay, my most powerful memory of this is actually going with my girlfriend to a viewing of it in the park in Ottawa. So they had an outdoor viewing of all three of them. And, <laughs> awesome. and it was right by the place that she lived. Were they all the back time. to back? Uh, no, it was like every no- once a week right. uh, okay. in Ottawa. Yes. And I don't know, there's there's a nostalgia to it to me too because of that and um the warm ottawa weather and the nights in ontario are so different than the nights in alberta where like you go outside and the weather just feels perfect sure right like it's yeah. like room temperature outside it it's, can get awful during the day but uh so great at night and just that night watching this film which you know has so captured the imagination of of cartoon of like think about the number of references that this show gets second only to star wars i think yeah like you said rick and morty like is almost (laughs) mirrored on it right and you know the crazy professor and except at least rick and morty have a reason to know each other yes which we we really don't know (laughs) why doc knows one of the running jokes i guess for back to the future is how the hell is marty friends with doc how did they meet but you know what the entirety of these films are uh, just rife with why the hell is that happening? Yeah, like, <laughs> so. well, I think that's the interesting thing. They don't, even, I think you've mentioned this in a podcast before. They don't even try to explain time travel, really. No, they just assume that the it plot works. inconsistencies they don't even attempt. No, they're just like, we don't a, care, and it's smart. Yeah, like <laughs> it makes it way more enjoyable. So that would be my biggest memory of Back to the Future, but. I think what I enjoyed most about it was this conception, and I'm sure we'll get to this, but in the first movie of, of self-overcoming, uh, in, the, in the sense that he didn't like how his life was. And through taking the right steps and making the right choices, his life became so much better. And I've always loved, I mean, we've done Donnie Darko. There's a lot of different films that I've loved that have kind of approached the idea of time travel. We did Rick and Morty. So I love that concept and playing around with it, obviously in this case, not intellectually, but (laughs) playing around with it for fun. Yes. Yeah. Well, and then there's obviously, I guess the memory that I have most vividly was kind of a bit of the disgust with Morty's mom for, or Marty's mom for falling in love with him. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And be like, like, I was young when I first saw this. Yeah. That would be. That would be the first memory. I imagine a lot of people had that reaction. Yeah. <laughs> when they... But also, like, I mean, you're, when you're young, you watch that moment where he punches Biff. Right? Uh, when his dad does? Yeah, sorry, when his dad punches yeah. Biff. And you're just like, the hero. Like, yeah. you know, 
I mean, everyone loves an underdog, yes. right? And I think I think this this movie plays off um, motifs in the same way that Star Wars does, mm, yes. but on totally different motifs. Like, yes. Not grandiose motifs. It's like you said, it plays off the cheesy motifs, but mm-hmm. it does it so well. No, I, oh man, so, so good. And I've often quipped that Back to the Future is the movie that is the universal good moodifying. Yes. <laughs> so whatever yes. mood I'm in, if I'm ever unhappy or frustrated or angry, I kind of I, I have this kind of operational heuristic I use where it's like, okay, well, no matter how bad things get, and I mean, we're in the midst of a pandemic, so global pandemic, global yeah. pandemic, so it could it can get pretty oh, bad. Well, actually, that's a re- redundancy. <laughs> pandemic is global, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's like deja vu all over again, yeah, hey? Exactly. <laughs> Nostalgia ain't what it used to no. be. I, I often think about things, like I, I know I've probably talked to you this before, but something I've found super useful for my own mental health in life is to remember that no matter how bad things get, I still live in a world where, um, and then I've got like these 12 things that I always remember exist. Like, okay, things might be bad, but I live in a world with Star Wars and Led Zeppelin and Sonic the Hedgehog and Nintendo and rock and roll. And inevitably in that list of things that remind me that life has a lot of beauty in it, it's always Back to the Future <laughs> is one of the main staples That's for that. Great. Because even though I, even though Star Wars is slightly more nostalgic and slightly deeper for me, Back to the Future, I think, is more fun than right. Star Wars. Right. Like Star Wars is probably more deeper archetypally, but Back to the Future is deeper in a humor based way. Which is very important. To yes. You, so that makes sense. Maybe it's would you say that Back to the Future is closer to your heart, but Star Wars is closer to your head? I don't know about that. Okay. I, I don't know if I could make that distinction because I if I because I feel like if I had to choose one, I would choose Star Wars. Yes. Right. But I don't think I could it would be devastating to have to choose. Well, I'm right? glad you don't have to. So. Like that would be my that would be my Sophie's choice. <laughs> that would be your Solomon cutting the so, baby in half. Situation. Oh yeah, if the Nazis had a gun to my head, <laughs> said choose one of your movies. Oh no, or we destroy both. <laughs> There's of a them. real problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, our assumption is that basically most of you know the plots to Back to the Future. They're not very secret. <laughs> I'm sure you've seen it, but for any of you who haven't, there are three films. In the first film, we're introduced to Marty, who lives in 1985 in Hill Valley, California, and he's friends with this mysterious Emmett Doc Brown, and Doc, as he's mostly known throughout the film. And at the beginning of the film, Marty's in Doc's house for some reason, finds out that he has to go meet Doc that night, because Doc has something to show him. Turns out Doc has a time machine made out of a DeLorean, which is so cool, and that once you get it up to 88 miles an hour, you're going to see some serious shit, if I'm remembering the quote properly. What happens is, and again, maybe because this is from the 80s, it's not the most politically correct version, The he stole, uh, Doc stole plutonium from the Libyans. <laughs> yes, so the Libyans right. show up in a hippie what, van to like, kill him. I, maybe during, during this brief time period, the Libyans somehow had a place in, exactly. in uh, cultural consciousness. But. Maybe maybe it was like a choice of like, well, we'll just pick them. Yeah. Well, no, I think like the Libyan regime, because wasn't there something during the Arab Spring? Like that was way later. But I feel like the Libri- Libyan regime was I don't trying. Know. Whatever. It doesn't matter. I don't know how hard. I mean, for a movie about time travel, I don't know how hard they spent. Getting their uh, right. exactitudes exact. No, probably not very much. <laughs> but, uh, you know, maybe we're wrong. In a lot of ways, this is probably the opposite of, of Rick and Morty. Yeah. 
So then Marty escapes in the DeLorean and time travels back to 1955, a week before the Under the Sea or the Enchantment Under the Sea dance that his mom and dad fall in love in, basically. And through a hilarious, unlikely plot... (laughs) maneuver marty's mom who's now because they're 1955 the same age as marty falls in love with him although his name is calvin klein to them right right <laughs> and because those are the uh, marty then has to spend the rest of the first movie figuring out how to make his mom fall in love with his dad and not him and his dad's kind of pathetic then there's this other character biff who's the bully both in 1985 and 1955 Marty makes it happen and then escapes and then they need the only way they can have enough power to get him back to 1985 is to send him at the exact time that the lightning storm hits the clock tower and he gets flung back to 1985 and honestly the end of the first movie is one of the most exciting moments in cinema I actually like we'll talk about this a lot later but the, the excitement factor of cinema in Back to the Future is almost unparalleled I think it's so good and so cheesy at the same time at the end of the movie, he's back in 1985, but then Doc shows up again and says, it's your kids, Marty! we got to help your kids! <laughs> and so then they travel to 2015, which gives a lot of joy to everybody who has now lived through 2015. Well, so the 2015 was when they were doing it uh, in the park, uh, when I went and watched it. Cause it was oh, perfect. Yes, yes, of course. That makes sense. So then you get 2015, and they go and help Marty's kids in the second movie, but old Biff steals an almanac, a sports almanac, and then goes back to 1955 to give it to young Biff so he can bet on everything. So an alternate timeline emerges where uh, 1985 Biff is the king. So when when Marty and Doc fix uh, 2015, go back to 1985, it's an alternate timeline. So now they're pretty fucked because <laughs> Biff is the king of the world. So they have to figure out when Biff got the almanac from old Biff in the time machine. And so then they have to go back to 1955. And there's just some amazing parallel storytelling going on because basically in the second the client like the 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 third act of the second movie is happening in the same time and place as the third act of the first movie yes so marty has to solve his problems of the second movie while avoiding stopping any of the problems happening in the first movie while all of it's going on because then there's a paradox anyway it's so great and then it and then he succeeds he gets the almanac back they burn it and they're, oh, everything's hunky-dory, but for some reason Doc is still flying the DeLorean up in the sky, and it's the night of the lightning storm, so the lightning strikes the car, sends him back to 1885, so 100 years before 1985, where our story is generally set. And so then in the third movie, 1955, Doc helps Marty go back to 1885 to save Doc, because when they find out that Doc has been killed, like six days after he's contacted Marty with a letter, to say all this, so then he Marty goes back to 1885, so the third movie is essentially a Western <laughs> with all of the Back to the Future motifs. And then they have a time-traveling train. They have a time-traveling train, because that's how they get it up to 88 miles an hour, because the gas got hit by an arrow. So anyway, it's just <laughs> like there's so many insane plot devices going on, and the plots of the movies are not the point of them. Doc falls in love with this Clara lady. They bond over their love of Jules Verne, and then at the end they have two boys named Jules and Verne, which is very funny. (laughs) And Marty manages to overcome his compunction to need to respond to other people's... uh, It's funny because his name is Needles. Other people's needling of his own courage, which avoids a major car accident. And so even though there's all this time travel and changing of the past and future, the last kind of 
lesson or motif you're left with is that no one's future is written. That's what Doc says to Marty and Jennifer, Marty's girlfriend at the end. No one's future is written. You can make it anything you want, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And so those are the plots of the movies. Again, not. <laughs> they're just, they're like backdrops for funny things to happen, essentially. Yes. yes. I guess we should start with Marty McFly. Uh, just as an, like, Michael J. Fox is just so much fun. <laughs> it's, I think he has so much fun in this, too. It, this is, because of how silly this story is, you need to do it earnestly. Yes. This is the same with Star Wars. I think I made this point when we did our Star Wars podcast. If you were to, <laughs> like, in any way be sarcastic or think that this was, like, the, the script is stupid, it wouldn't resonate with people the same way. So I just love Doc, too, but the way M- Michael J. Fox commits to marty <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know yeah i think it's one of the best parts uh, of yeah. him anyway so yeah. you had some thoughts about marty from the first movie like you referenced them in the intro yeah so why don't you talk about well i think his journey in this okay so i'm just gonna go from the my, the feelings that i have around his character but right. one of the things i find fascinating about things like this is um how they capture the audacity of youth right <laughs> yes. like yeah he he feels like he's invincible he's cool he's got the hot girlfriend you know mm. he's you know the problems of the he wants the four by four truck yeah he the problems of the 17 18 year old guy right are so but i i mean i never had those kind of problems because i wasn't as cool as marty mm. <laughs> maybe i had like rebellious stuff against my parents but also the motifs that we often see in movies like this is the uncool dad. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah and yeah. like the dad's a loser and that's kinda and I also never had that as a problem. So it's it's it was an interesting and his dad is a major loser in the first movie. Yeah, like <laughs> at oh, the yeah, start. Like, like Marty's is just like a like pathetic guy. And you're like, how did he marry his mom? And there's like this all these questions and, and you wonder like, what are the things that are making Marty kind of want to be so cool and want to and it's a lot of it it seems to be a rebellion against his father's way of being yeah 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 and i've always found it fascinating that what ends up happening in this first movie which i think is the most interesting uh in terms of marty's development in some ways Mm. is he realizes how important maybe the people that he at first didn't value are Mm. right he realizes I mean, there's obviously a very selfish reason for all of this, which is that he wants to continue to exist. <laughs> yes. Um, and so maybe it's not, you know, altruistic, but he realizes that his existence is dependent upon people that maybe he'd formerly disdained. And and that's a realization that I think comes with maturity. Right. Right? Because it's like often we can we can look back at the past, look at our parents, look at the our ancestors and be like, oh, look at how backwards they were were or they weren't cool or whatever it was. And not appreciate that their humanity and potentially their existential suffering, but they're continuing on through that yeah. and being able to to you know fight against the void, <laughs> pr- provided us with our very existence. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good point because it just reminded me of how in the first movie he is kind of <laughs> – when he goes back to 1955 and he meets his dad, who's the same age as him, he's kind of his dad's lifeline. Yeah, right? he ends up being the guy. And 
well, and you know, in one of those twists, he gets named Marty because <laughs> yeah. he was the one who introduced I like that them, name, right? Yeah. <laughs> but so originally, we find out the reason that uh, Marty's parents, George and Lorraine, got together was because Lorraine's dad actually hit George with his car because he fell out of a tree. Well, he yeah, Tom, there right? was never like there, again. This is such. <laughs> I guess the best way to put it is a back to the future ism because this these movies are full of these. There's these throwaway lines where I think it's Marty. Like there's an early scene in the first movie where the whole family's sitting together eating, and Marty's sister says, "Dad, what were you doing outside of Grandpa's house that day?" And it's left dangling, right? <laughs> like it's not. It's not. It's just foreshadowing because we find out that the reason George McFly, who's Marty's dad, was there was he was peeping Tom on Lorraine well, through the window. Also, a part of that I love about this movie is and that, he's like, but like in 1985, George is like, well, I don't know, I, I don't, we don't know about, you know, like he just shrugs it off. Yeah. <laughs> so like these kind of semi foreshadowing, semi self referential comments are just littered throughout Back to the Future, and part like a major part of the charm of the movie is those things. Well, and interestingly enough, what I like about this too, see, I do see a depth in this movie, but the depth is, like you said, it's really good cheesy, but it's also like, it's playing off of things that really uh, impact us all. Like one of the things is our parents being young, right? Like like Marty is horrified that his mother Mm -hmm. is like a sexual being. Yeah. Right. Well, and how and, and, and she's so <laughs> sheltered. Like the whole reason that she ends up with her with his dad is because she's never sees guys. She never gets to hang out with guys. Yeah. But Marty, you know, foils that whatever meeting um, <laughs> by saving George. But then she she's like, you know, and and one of the things that isn't talked about by kids about their parents is they they, they were just like us like well they're, they're, they're just biologically human right? a little not- aside i was actually a couple months ago or maybe like six weeks ago i was just talking about this because i was doing a work project with some like a different agency and a couple of their teen youths and we were talking about an anti-bullying thing and it just struck me that all of these people who are teens now because of how technology is, there's going to be just unlimited data and videos, basically, of them for their children to see one day. So I don't know about you, but I always, not as much anymore, but definitely like pre-YouTube, pre-cameras <laughs> on every phone, whenever I would see a picture of my parents when they were much younger, and certainly younger than I am now, it always weirded me out a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I just was never able to understand, like, because for most of my life, my parents existed as my parents at the age that they were or older as they aged, right? So to think of them as young people, like in their teens, 20s, and 30s, is kind of a foreign concept for a kid, right? Yeah, my, so my dad Marty always... is so <laughs> confronted with this weirdness. Yeah, exactly, it's... which I think is would be a weird confrontation, which is the cool part, right? Why is Back to the Future so interesting? Because it's a thought experiment. It's thought experiment after thought experiment. Exactly. What if you were to meet your parents? Like, <laughs> what would that be like? Yeah. What if your mom was super hot and into you? <laughs> yeah. like, that's gross. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I definitely want to talk about that. But I just I want to not lose the thread here on, okay, so Marty goes back to 1955. His dad's a loser. <laughs> and then Marty accidentally, through messing with his own past, prevents the thing from happening that would make George, his dad, meet Lorraine, his mom, and make her like him, basically. Now, this sets forward a paradox where now all of Marty 
and his siblings will start disappearing from the picture Marty has. And on top of all of that, uh, Lorraine starts falling in love with Marty, <laughs> which is yes. even weirder. <laughs> okay. Why is George able to come back? Now, there's the hilarious beginning of it where Marty dresses up in the suit that he came from and plays Van Halen through yes. through um, George's headphones, and he pretends to be Vader from Vulcan. Right. <laughs> because right. he knows that George is is uh, a nerd, yes, <laughs> a 1955 yes. nerd. However, Star Trek and Star Wars haven't come out yet, so he wouldn't know. <laughs> so anyway, just more of the f- hilarious awesomeness of Back to the Future there. So anyway, but the real point here is that what makes George able eventually to stand up to Biff and to have confidence to go for Lorraine. It's Marty believing in him and encouraging him and being, for lack of a better term, a friend. Now, obviously, the metastructure of the movie is that Marty is only doing this so that he survives. Right. So the motivation is a little off in this analogy. However, I think it's... Marty is still someone who seems like he wants to see his father slash George do better, right? So I think in the first movie, especially, Marty presents to me the person who is the kind of unsung bulwark against other people's sadness and depression, right? He's the kind of kid in the hallway who once, like, and I remember this a lot from when I was in school, like someone is a bit of a bully to someone and then... And even happened to me, not so much when I was in school, but like on the playground is a little younger age, like age seven to 10 kind of thing. Like someone on the playground was mean to me. I feel down. And then someone kind of just walks by and says, hey, don't worry about them. They're just angry. Like, don't let it get to you. So even something as simple as that, as the kind of bystander walking by and with an encouraging word. And again, like the unsung hero of everyday life is people like that. And I feel like that's kind of the motif Marty is giving off. Oh, yeah. I like that because I do think those people, I I think often like what makes people become like Marty's dad, like kind of pathetic. And yeah, I've met a lot of people in my life who were, were kind of like that. And some of them have overcome it and it's been beautiful to watch and some of them haven't. And it's like, well, what is the difference? And often I do think the difference is whether or not you have anybody in your life who's willing exactly. to, 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 to believe in you. And you're right. I think Marty's, um, maybe his motivations are not pure, but are any of our motivations pure? <laughs> like, I think no. sometimes people are nice to people like that because it makes them feel good well, about themselves. Well, you'd have to, like, figure out what you mean by pure. Well, yeah. <laughs> right? So there's, yeah, there's some yeah. problems there. But, like, for example, like, say times that I've been nice to people who are maybe in that position around me or when people have been nice to me when I was in that position mm-hmm. around them. Maybe it just made them feel good. Well, and I think it taps into something like our 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 moral sentiment of sympathy. Yes, like that that is a kind of precognitive emotional reaction. Like I just happen to really not like someone getting verbally abused for what seems to be an undeserved reason. Right, <laughs> right. Like right. that just that grinds at me in a way that it hurts me a little bit too to see someone else suffer like that needlessly. And I mean, we've talked about this before, and it's. I mean, Freud talked about it in his civilization and its discontents of like the different layers of suffering that humans have to go through just simply by existing in the world. And then there's there's the kind of like what our natural environment will do to us inevitably suffering. 
And I mean, even the coronavirus now is a good example of that. Like, this is a virus. It exists in nature. <laughs> like, we yeah, are, we, we, we we are <laughs> destined to suffer at yes. some level. Yeah. And the best we can do is mitigate it. And then he builds it up to the final level is the conscious and unnecessary suffering people put on each other. And that's the kind of suffering that I recoil against and think is worth trying to fix. And that's the kind of suffering that Marty is trying to alleviate from his dad. I mean, again, because of the narrative, Marty has no choice (laughs) but to save his dad and his mom's marriage. Mm -hmm. And we notice this at the end of the first movie. Along the way, what happens because of Marty doing that is how much stronger his dad and his mom are by the time he returns to 1985. Well, yeah, their whole lives change. And I think... Really, um, maybe the deep message of the first movie for Marty is, and and like Marty is actually, it seems fundamentally a kind person. Yeah, right. Like yeah. he's not an asshole. He's not mean. I mean, that's why he's the hero in a high school movie. Essentially, <laughs> yeah. this is a long high school movie, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's the hero because while he's cool, he's what everyone hopes a cool person would be, or maybe what some people being cool hope they would be is mm. like they're not above others yeah right? they actually care about people below them well and it's it's you can what you hope a boss would be too or or anyone exactly right? yeah you could hope the thing is this is not an ideal i mean it's an ideal in the sense that it's something worth trying to get to but it's not a, a utopian ideal of a person because i remember these kind of people in high school yeah. who were i've had people like this in my athletic good looking smart they had all the attributes that would have allowed them to be condescending and patronizing and an asshole and they chose not to be i actually think that's more common than people think i hope Um, so (laughs) because you know the trope is oh they're popular they're not uh they're not nice yeah but like you don't usually become that popular if you're an asshole well i mean you get there are i guess archetypal reputations you can get in high school right like the jock or the people that we call them the preps right (laughs) in high school or the bad boy uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> you think of like the serpents in Riverdale. Kind right, of right, right. Like these are archetypes for stories. And the thing is, they are contrasted. I do remember people who were in a similar boat as the nice popular people, I guess, who weren't as nice. And what was the difference? I think it was just the people who were nicer chose to be that way. Like right. they didn't see, they didn't see the point. They didn't see the glory in flaunting their attributes. Yeah. Um, outside of the domain where those attributes were necessary. Well, I, here's right? Like if you're good at basketball or if you're really good at school, you don't need to flaunt those facts about yourself outside of the basketball court or the classroom. Well, really, the people who do flaunt it and the people are insecure, right? Like the people who in my life have been, let's say, the popular, good-looking, you know, successful ones. And I, and sure. I have people in my life very much. I mean, there was one guy. His name is Sam Vanderveer. And, oh, man, the issue wasn't him. He was always nice to me. Right, right, right. I was jealous and envious of him. And I think so often in that context, it's actually just perspective, mm-hmm. right? It's the people who are looking at those people who have the things they want and are envious and jealous of them. Yeah. And, that call, and, and that can make them hate that person or dislike that person, even though that person's a perfectly wonderful human being. Yeah. It's it's that your perception of what they have, which is what you want, can actually cloud your judgment. And so right. I'm sure I think there are people who don't like Marty in in the in the film and may, maybe even Biff to some degree. 
who really they just are envious of who and what he is. Yeah, yeah, I think you're probably right about that. So, so going back to what, what he does for George. What he does for George is George accepts. It's actually a benefit of George's, too, that he doesn't just say, oh, that Marty guy is so much cooler than me, so mm-hmm. much better than me. Why would he even talk to me? Like, oh, I'm so envious of him. I don't. And, and, and now the girl that I whatever i'm lusting after but slash in love with <laughs> likes him yeah. so like fuck this guy right which would be a default setting so this is actually the strength of george in that he accepts it and believes that marty actually has his best interest well in okay mind. so then here's a really super interesting uh, psychological thing that i think is worth noting here is okay so back to the future is cheesy but this is what we're talking about marty believes in George, tells George the things about George that are worthwhile, and George accepts that. Yes. Right? He doesn't yes. he doesn't shrug it off. He doesn't say excuses. you're crazy. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't deflect either. That would be my go-to. And this has happened to me before where I'm getting kudos or praise or encouragement or something along these lines of um, from someone about something that they think I've done well or I'm good at. And my go-to psychological defense mechanism is deflect. Mm. Oh, I couldn't have done it without these people, right? I couldn't have this other group made it possible. Like, uh, without the freedom from X person, I couldn't have achieved. Like, I'm, I'm always just looking to see who else deserves that uh, encouragement. Right. And so it's been very difficult. And I, I remember one person says, like, just accept it. You did this. And that's it. That's yeah. fine. And it, it, it is a tough psychological place to get to to just think in the marty way not not trumpeting it but just be like oh okay there are these things about me that other people appreciate and i guess i can accept that yeah <laughs> without making well, it somebody else that is kind of what that self-awareness is actually what gives strength to pour out to others right because how are you actually supposed to help others if it's like that whole you know how do you how do you pour from an empty class yeah right like you can't give if there's nothing if you have nothing and marty seems to have somehow figured out how to believe and 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 the cool thing about this trilogy is that he constantly is developing yeah but there are our base marty the the young marty the marty that hasn't been corrupted by problems yet like Mm -hmm. this is maybe the glorification of youth as well like he's got some vitality but he's also got some some strength inner strength mm-hmm. that I don't know where it comes from to be honest yeah. in the in the first movie. Well, I guess we just have to think that it's he actually cares about people. Yeah. And I guess just that like he's that like 85th percentile of cool kids in high school and he rather than needing to climb higher, like the status game is not, That's not crucial to him. Yeah. He's like well I mean, I don't know that for sure, but right. he seems more interested in things like music, <laughs> right. right? Or right. Um, uh, Jennifer, his girlfriend. But yeah, I like that. I think that that's kind of what he does so well in the first movie from like a really true fiction perspective. Yes, exactly. His, his encouragement of his dad and to bring out the best of his dad that maybe his dad can't even see and then hilariously the trajectory that that puts his dad on is great yes you know yes so then moving into the second movie i think we start to see a little bit of marty's flaws which is cool like i like that so the t- the two big ones 
are Marty's, you know, when he first buys the sports almanac because he wants to bet on, he wants to go back to 1985 and be able to make a lot of money betting on a sure thing. And there's a really funny, and I mean, we could talk about it in a second. There's a really funny way of how he is kind of angry at Biff, not because Biff stole the almanac, but because he stole Marty's idea (laughs) to go do the same thing, right? Like he's mad at Biff because it was his idea to go cheat the system, essentially. Right. right. <laughs> so that denotes maybe a, an other area of growth needed by Marty. But also, and I think more deep and not resolved until the third movie, which again is a good arc for Marty, is that I wouldn't know exactly how to phrase it, but it's the whole motif around him not being able to walk away from someone calling him chicken. Yeah. And the unnecessary confrontations he finds himself in and danger because he can't essentially walk away from what maybe an anthropologist would call like an honor culture reaction to something and this is a bit nerdy but Steven Pinker has written a little bit about the difference between a a culture of honor versus a culture of dignity and the culture of honor is the one where there is a pretty big lawlessness and you do have to stand up for yourself so there's an emergent reason why an honor culture would start but pinker argues one of the gains of civilization is that you don't actually have to respond to people who call you names anymore (laughs) well i think there this goes back to something we we talk about a lot but i think it's one of the most important uh psychological insights i've ever encountered so i i think it's just reiterating it is important like What's happening in high school, what happens in life, the, you know, the Jordan Peterson-esque lobster situation is, and actually, I feel like Back to the Future is a very good example of the lobster situation. Right, right? yes, Because, like, every battle the lobster loses, it declines psychologically. Every battle it wins, it grows, right? And it's, that's the kind of underlying idea behind Back to the Future, which is the things that, like, events that happen and then how you react to those events will will impact your long-term future. Exactly, right? yeah. And um, one of the things we see with Marty is is that he is in this youthful state of trying to figure out where he is in society. Mm-hmm. And in the first movie, he's he's doing well, but his, his family is very low, right? And, and un, unimportant. Um, and so he's trying to rise in the hierarchy. Sure. Right? And the hierarchy... From what I can tell, I was homeschooled, and so I don't know, but maybe you can talk to this more. But from what yeah, I've heard... Yeah, you rose to being the fourth coolest kid in your school. <laughs> exactly. And it was a hard fight for fourth with with uh, my dog. So, <laughs> Oh, yeah, I forgot about the dog. Sorry, fifth. fifth. <laughs> um, Roasted. Um, but my impression is that high school is very tense because people are learning how to socialize. Yeah, right. I learned how to socialize in university, which is a very different environment from what I can tell. And socialization is really figuring out your place in society. Mm, Yeah. Even more than how to talk to people, how to interact. It's like, where do I stand in the hierarchy? And so what's happening is we have an alpha-like character in Marty who is trying to assert his dominance regularly. And... This is an animalistic... Or at least stand his ground. Well, he, he doesn't want to be pushed down, yeah. which is really an assertion of don- dominance. Because if you think about how animals... Like, why does a why does a wolf roll on its back to an alpha when after the fight is done? Yeah. It's like, well, you can kill me. Yeah. Right? 
It's it's very I accede to you. I accede. I accede. Right, and we see that happen all the times in these movies where all of uh, you know Biff's little minions. So we have Marty the Lone Wolf who's trying to stay kind of lone wolfy. He's he doesn't want to be pushed down, but he also will not. You know, he wants to stay where he is. Mm. Right. Whereas Biff wants subservience, like pack animal. Right, and. That dichotomy is a, it's going to cause clashes on a on a subconscious primal level. Yeah, and I think it's important to understand that that is really what's happening here. But what we're what we end up seeing, as you point out in the second movie, is a little bit of a transcendence of this mm. primal animalistic approach yeah. to yourself. And very importantly, probably most importantly we see the consequences in Marty's life for him to not be able to walk away from these uh, verbal challenges that ultimately mean nothing. So there's the minor version of it where when Griff, who is Biff's grandson, I guess, when Griff calls him a chicken in Cafe 80s in 2015, Marty has to fight him and that almost gets him, like, I don't know, beat up. (laughs) Like So it's a minor but still not fun to get beat up uh he only escapes because of the hoverboard and the water and etc it's really cool actually it's a great scene but more importantly old marty so 2015 marty in his 40s or 50s he can't say no to needles when needles wants him to get into this like credit scam (laughs) through the skype type thing that they're doing yes and he's not going to do it until Needles calls him a chicken, and then he does it, and then he's fired. So there's like a major consequence there, right? Yeah. And so I think what's really important and well set up in the second movie for Marty's character is that not only will you get into these minor altercations if you go down this path, such as uh, an unnecessary fight with Griff and cronies, but there are also down the line very big horrible things that will happen to you like getting fired if you are prone to someone just calling you something as simple as a chicken (laughs) right like it's so funny it's very back to the future-esque that the thing that triggers marty is something that's being called a chicken right Right. there are way worse words to be used (laughs) you know this is is actually really interesting and not something that i i'm glad you're bringing this out because this is something that i've personally struggled with a lot is is um backing away from a verbal challenge yeah, or or anger at being challenged. Ah, um, okay. And it depends on the person, right? So it's if, if it's someone I respect, if it's a mentor or a, a close friend, being challenged often makes me become reflective and hopefully work on changing behavior. But if it's someone I a don't respect or b, but but this is like I guess a really deep psychological problem for me is I react very negatively mm. when i feel like someone is is pointing out a flaw that that i know is there mm. but i maybe i don't want to talk about and maybe really what's happening for marty is maybe he feels like a bit of a chicken right <laughs> like yeah because i know at least in my own life when i get the angriest and i feel like okay let's say like i'm out on the street out in front of a bar and someone way bigger than me, like, yeah. challenges me. I'll, I'll get in a fight with them, right? Like, just because so there's wise. something in me, <laughs> right, that, uh, and thankfully, usually, I almost always have friends around who pull me away, and there's not actually ever really a fight. Even though I'm not the biggest or the strongest person, there's some part of me that, that rebels against this idea that people can push me down. Yeah. And not only that, though, 
more importantly, why is that rebellion necessary? Hmm. Like, why is that? Why is that reaction? So I, I, I feel a lot of um, maybe not being called a chicken, but I feel <laughs> yeah. a lot of kinship with Marty and that idea that, well, you know, no, no, don't tread on me, kind of. Well, thing. I, but I, so I'm guessing then that you have experienced some uh, unfortunate consequences from well for <laughs> being sure and but but, but and not on the fighting side as, as much but let's say um if i get pushed to a certain point where i feel like people are not respecting me or and and i get angry enough or frustrated enough or even maybe anxious enough i don't want to don't know how to describe it i will lash out right right very yeah. aggressively mm-hmm. and i have experienced very negative consequences sure. from that hmm. So it is interesting to to look at that and be like, okay, so this is a real thing that people have. I can attest to it because I have it. How do we deal with this? How does Marty deal with it? Well, and it's, uh, I mean, and this is done so well because they actually filmed and made uh, Back to Future Part 2 and Part 3 kind of at the same time and then just released them a year apart. Right. So the first Back to the Future is released in 1985, which is when it's set. Back to the Future 2 was released in 1989, and Back to the Future Part 3 was released in 1990. So actually, as an aside, there's a really funny, maybe the first ever, there's a trailer for Back to the Future 3 at the end of Back to the Future 2. It's like part of the movie. (laughs) Right. So it's weird. (laughs) Anyway, the resolution to this problem that Marty is facing is in the third movie. I mean, there are a couple times where he can't walk away early, and you think of the danger that eventually, like essentially, other than the train scene, it's kind of fun how Back to the Future has these human relationship climaxes and then these Back to the Future time travel climaxes. Right. Like in the first one, Marty has to save his parents' relationship and there's a climactic moment with him on the guitar there, right? Yes. But then there's also the clock tower scene, which is the more Back to the Future climactic moment. In the second one, he has to get the almanac from Biff and, and not interrupt his family. But then there's also like the lightning that comes and the third one there's him they're saving doc from mad dog tannin but then also on the anyway i love it right (laughs) it's just so great out there's like parallel there's like two climaxes in each movie which is like two more climaxes than i can ever (laughs) give to anyone (laughs) oh roasted (laughs) roasted so anyway in the third movie though there are a couple scenes earlier where marty does give in to his being called chicken and it puts him in a worse scenario and psychologically, the, I guess, goodness climax of his character arc is when Mad Dog is outside of the saloon saying to Clint Eastwood, which is his name in the third movie, yeah. I'm going to count to 10, and if you don't come out, you're yella, which is old-timey slang for being a coward, yeah. which is what being a chicken is. And Marty manages to, like his line is, at the count of 10, he's an asshole. I don't care what he thinks, and I don't care what all of you think. Then that's mirrored again at the very end of the third one, where he, like Jennifer has found out in the second movie that Marty gets really injured in a car accident. They both do when he's drag racing with needles. And then the end of the third movie, they're back in 1985, and Needle says, what, you chicken? And normally throughout the run, this is when Marty would challenge him, and he doesn't. And it results in him not getting into this major car accident. So he doesn't suffer from that. So anyway, all of that is the resolution to this problem we've been describing is Marty realizing that there's so much more to life that he can pursue if he doesn't get caught up in like these muckraking games 
of people who want to just be in the mud. Well, I think you've touched on something really important here. You said it's really about how others view Marty, not how Marty views himself. Exactly. Right? He does, And when he says he's an asshole and I don't care what he thinks, I don't care what you think, what you guys think. Really, that's what it is. It's even more important. He doesn't actually care whether Biff or Mad Dog or whatever. He doesn't care if they hate him mm. or, yeah. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. or think he's a coward. It's that he doesn't want everyone else right and and that yeah that's that's a great insight because really when we have these angry moments or even for me when i get when i lash out at someone who's criticizing me who i, who I feel may have legitimate criticism but my my response to it is anger in order to sure, yeah. ameliorate, ameliorate the the criticism perhaps mm, yeah um really it's that i don't want them to think <laughs> that of me i'd rather them think of me as like angry than mm-hmm. i would whatever thought it is that they have or whatever the criticism is. That's dead on. It's 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 other people's yeah. opinion. It's caring too much about what other people think. And the opportunity cost of that is something like you are going to be distracted in the best case scenario, if not totally, it's made defunct to go pursue the things you wanted to go get done anyway. Yeah. So when Marty has to get away from Griff in the second one because he can't walk away from being called chicken, it puts into jeopardy his mission of helping his kids. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. When he can't say no to needles, it puts in jeopardy his job, which is presumably something he needs for livelihood for his family, right? Yes, yes. And there are a few other instances of this, whereas even though Marty does have to go fight Buford, Mad Dog Tannen, because they capture Doc, he's able to, like, presumably if they hadn't captured Doc, he would have been able to get on to his way to getting to the train, to getting back to his own time. Like his, So it's like these things that you are endeavoring to do in the world are, are what are sacrificed if you go play the shitty games with people who don't want something greater than that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And... The or who care so much about mm-hmm. perception and how others yeah. view them. So that kind of cliche from a kid being a kid, be like, don't worry what other people think. It's not just to kind of. <laughs> it's not just an old wives' tale of, like it's a it's an easier path to mental peace. Yes, as well as yes. being able to go pursue things you want more. Well, to it's do. like our grandma always says, right? Uh, if you're always thinking about what other people think about you, you'll be surprised how little they do. Yeah, exactly. And the best part is, of course, that that's a little bit of a pun because <laughs> they might think very little of you or they might not uh, think about yes, you very much yeah. at all. But, but the all of the people in Marty's life who he actually wants in his life don't, don't force him into those kind of situations. No. It's right? really the people that he doesn't seem to, to have a deep, caring relationship with well it's all the iterations of biff well yes all the but no but i see i don't think it's biff and needles, that he cares and about, needles right or needles no no he doesn't he doesn't care about them that's like the point is like the double tragedy of all this is it's people that he doesn't care about that are forcing out this worst of him right because he doesn't want to be perceived a <laughs> yeah. certain way and people like doc or jennifer or his family they don't treat him like that no. and so this is why i love his final decision in the end is that his orientation goes back towards trying to pursue the good things in life such as in the movie getting doc and him back to their time in 1985 and then going to live his life with his girlfriend and figure out how to advance in his life he chooses that over Mad Dog calling him Yella. I mean, I'll talk about this a bit later when we talk about this as a movie, but narratively, it's so perfect. And I mean, I guess it's perfect because they were able to write both stories at the same time. So they were able to make great foreshadowing in the second movie for the third one. But I think that that's kind of 
the main thrust of Marty. And I mean, these this is a kind of because it's a silly movie, you're not getting really in-depth character analysis. This is not an in-depth character analysis movie or no. set of movies, but it is. The motifs are amazing, and I think that's the biggest one with Marty. So that's what I would say about him. <laughs> in, there we go. In a really true fiction way. Yes. Hey, everybody. Dave and I just want to take a second to say thank you for listening. Making this podcast has been a great experience, and we really appreciate all of you who choose to spend some time with us. Part of our goal is to be super open about everything we talk about on the podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, thoughts, ideas, feedback, clarifications, or praise, please send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Also, if you get your podcasts on iTunes or Spotify, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you get notified when a new episode is released. If you feel so inclined, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. That is a really good way to help new listeners find the show. And please pass the show along to anyone who you think may enjoy it. Again, thank you so much for listening, because as I'm sure you have gathered, we love talking. So then, Doc Brown. He's weird. Yeah. <laughs> he's a very weird guy. He's very he's obviously a genius, but I just like I noticed He's so confident in his machine that he gets him and Marty to stand in front of it as it starts to go 88 miles an hour right at them. It's like, is that necessary? Yeah. He's very excited. I guess that's probably the thing that I admire the most about Doc. Throughout the three movies, he's very excited about... He's pulled back towards the fountainhead discovery of things. So he is this kind of stereotype of the mad inventor. But I like that he's humanized in the way that he's every problem. I'll put it to you this way: every problem that comes up, and there's a lot of problems that comes up. He's ultimately motivated by the science and the invention and the potential, right? Yes. And I think that that's why he's inspiring, in a way, as a someone to be like, oh yeah, like I am excited about this kind of stuff. So anyway, what are your thoughts about Doc Brown? I think. Um... I think we could all hope to be like Doc Brown when we're <laughs> older, right? Because he's still fascinated by life. He's still excited by the relationships in his life. He still finds love, yeah. right? Or, or I mean, he finds it later in life, you know, if you find it earlier or whatever. But I agree. It's his enthusiasm. He is an enthusiastic person about everything. And there's just such a joy in that. In fact, he's quite the opposite of Rick, like in every almost <laughs> yeah, conceivable yeah, 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 yeah. way. like. Rick doesn't care. Rick thinks the universe is broken, unfixable, you know, suffering and you die. And Doc thinks the universe is exciting and fixable and and that, you know, and that the potentiality is endless, right? Like your future isn't written. Well, that's an exciting idea. There's no fatalism yeah. in Doc's world. Mm -hmm. And there's so little fatalism that he he creates a time machine to, to wander around. <laughs> and uh, The only... I guess the categorical exception to that is how they can't create a paradox. Right. Right. Because <laughs> if they do create a paradox, then everything does end. Right. But otherwise, everything is everything, on a continuum. And everything else is <laughs> yeah. fine. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess I don't think he's actually a very significant character, as funny as this sounds, like a very significant character in the movie. Like, really, this is Marty's story. Yes. Agreed. Um, but I do think that his enthusiasm and, like, as a character... You know how you were saying this movie always cheers you up and always brings you joy? I think mm. it's Doc. Yes. I think... Well, this is... That's a good point. 
even though this is the three movies, it's Marty's story. I think we remember Doc more. Yeah. <laughs> because and probably of things like his mannerisms, yeah. his mannerisms and his style of talking and his great Scott. Like I think he I don't know. I waver in terms of which one is more important. Because plot wise, Doc is more important. Character wise, Marty's more important. But just the way Doc is is so memorable. You know? Yeah, well, and like, and I think he he's the he's the heart and soul mm, yeah. of this a trilogy, and uh, and probably Marty's the lesson. Yeah, right. He's the thing we're supposed to learn. Marty's the thing we're supposed to learn, mm-hmm. and Doc is the is the excitement is the joy that we're supposed to experience. Yeah, and I I like his problem solving. Like I like that he's got that kind of predilection towards. Oh, this isn't hopeless. Even though it is very much not hopeful. Yeah. There is there are way, like his ingenuity saves Marty all the time. Yes. So it's funny because he does put Marty in this predicament <laughs> right. in the first place. <laughs> Repeatedly. However, he figures out how to make a time machine. He figures out how to, in the second one, instead of having to use plutonium, it can be powered on like banana peels, <laughs> right? right? Like he figures yeah. out how to send Marty back into the future through the lightning through the clock tower. He figures out everything and it's all to help Marty. He even figures out how to get, when he's sent to 1885, he sends Marty that letter, which tells him where the DeLorean is so that Marty could have a chance of getting back to 1985. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so it's like that way of being is what makes Marty want to go help Doc when it seems that Doc is going to die in 1885, etc., etc. So the one thing that I wanted to bring up, and we've talked about this a little bit before, but it's I think it's worth reiterating, is that in the third movie, he bonds with Clara, who is his love interest that he saves, uh, over their shared interest of Jules Verne. And I think that this is, you know, obviously you don't need me to spell out the importance of a shared interest and a cultural overlap. But so I'd, I'd phrase it to you in a different way, maybe, is that what I think is, it's I, I don't want to necessarily focus on the fact that they have shared tastes, even though that's great and that's interesting. I would more say the rush of joy you get and also the importance of it being not coerced out of someone. Like I think about, something like someone loving the same band as I love, but we didn't, I didn't say, can you like this band? Like I didn't show it to them. They just like of their own organically, it it comes up that this is something they care about. So that makes me think, oh my gosh, maybe this person is attracted to things I'm attracted to without any of my influence for them to be attracted to those things. Right. Which is exciting. Which is a great germane way of building a relationship with somebody. You know, so I don't know. Have you ever experienced that kind of? Oh, I think that's uh, like uncoerced. That's the greatest romantic joy. Yeah, in my opinion, or friendship too. Or, like, or, well, yeah. yeah, actually, that's the greatest. That's the greatest joy. One of the greatest joys. So mm, I'd say yeah. also introducing some or something you love to someone you love, and then them loving it too. That's yeah. also a great joy, definitely. But uh, I agree. Like, well, like that. Maybe it's not a joy. It's one of the most exciting things. Sure, yeah. It's super exciting when you just met a person and you start talking. And they're like, "You too? Like yeah, you yeah. like this thing too?" And when they, when their excitement for that thing is equal to your own, it's an immediate bond. Now, I actually don't think uh, romantically it's that sustainable. Personally, shared interests. No, no, shared interests are important, but that can't be the foundation. 
uh, the foundation has to be your your love and care for the other person apart from their interests. Because one of the things I've found is like you can share interests, but but if if your only connection is over, like for I'll use my friend Thomas Hunt for example. Not not that we're romantic, although we we joke about it. Like <laughs> we <laughs> right. we signed up for a YMCA membership as gay lovers at one point so that we could get it cheaper. But uh, That's smart, yeah, it was uh, it was funny. But Tom and I love a lot of the same things, and and over the last you know. T- I guess almost 13 years of friendship now we've we've shared things with each other and like sometimes I forget mm. what he's shown me and what I've shown him but the thing that bonds us is not those things it's it's that we love one another and that we right. it's like you've talked about in previous podcasts we know each other's flaws we know each other's foibles we know each other's quirks and it's those things that have given us a deep love for one another and it's just we enjoy each other's company because we share interests. Mm-hmm, yeah. And so I, I agree with you that shared interests are incredibly important. But that emotional experience, and I've had it many times primarily with women, where I just get excited because they love the same thing I do, that's like a, a, it's a, it's a hot and fast fire, but it burns out, right? It doesn't have fuel. Right. It doesn't have enough fuel to keep going. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. Going back to what you're saying about that experience, one of the coolest experiences yeah. in life and one of the most addictive experiences yeah, in life. Yeah, true. Because I'm always chasing that. It's a rush. It's a rush. Yeah. Exactly. Well, okay. Here, I think here's how we could make it sustainable and at least in consonance with that deeper love and care that you're referencing is that I think that there are, well, I don't think, I know that there are a lot of moments in life that are not your okay, I need to stand on the altar of love and profess it to the heavens. There's just a lot of moments where it's like, okay, you both get home from work and now you've got a couple hours and dinner and what are we going to do? Like, I think it's those moments where shared interests become really crucial. When like there isn't really anything important going on that day and you have figured out all your problems at least approximately <laughs> for the next couple hours, you're both in a kind of a good mood so you make a joke about something you know that they like, you know, it's, it's these kind of, I call them the in-between moments of life. I like it. I where like they're not the marquee moments, but they're the glue moments. And I think that those kind of rush of joy, common interests, surprising common interests make that glue stronger. Because I do think like you can really care about someone but still prefer to be in a different room than with them for several hours when you're together in the evening and i think that's not the way i would want it no no okay i i I agree with that i don't think you want to be in a really you want shared interests i mean i think those are essential i just think that moment of excitement when you discover that someone Uh, has loved a a thing that you well that's ephemeral that's ephemeral yeah right but the the sustained yeah, I mean, like, you're it's not like, going to become best friends or lovers with someone. Well, maybe you are, but I hope you wouldn't, who who doesn't share any of your interests. Like, that no. that seems like a really... But if you think about it like light. a pilot light that's always very small but there so that when you need to ignite it, you know it's there. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. For shared interest. So that was my <laughs> enjoyment of Doc. It's weird, but I don't actually have anything really else to say about Doc. I don't as think a character. That he's a deep character. No. He's just fun. Yeah. He's he, super he, he fun. He plays in a very significant role, but there's not a lot to say about him. Yes. Okay. So then we should talk a little bit about the Biff character. So it's Biff, Griff, and Buford. And there are 
So it's five. It's actually five different characters. There's 1985 Biff, 1955 Biff, 2015 Biff, 2015 Griff, and 1885 Buford. Right. So there's five different iterations of this character, even though they're essentially the same character in all of it. And he's dumb, and he's an asshole, and he's terrible to women, and he's so terrible to women that I think he would be arrested in the modern age. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like it's there is. I think the way Biff treats women is the most dated feature of this movie right because you just wouldn't be allowed to it well Well, i mean mean, no in 1955 probably there was something like that in the way that he treats women but ultimately it's a mistake to just write biff off as an idiot Hmm. and here's why it's a mistake a couple reasons the temptation is so there to write him off as an idiot because of how unlikable he is so i think that there is a there's a psychological illusion between, okay, if you don't like someone, they must be really incompetent in other attributes as well. <laughs> yeah, and that's just like a normal projection. <laughs> exactly, on. right? You project the worst qualities on people you already have negative feelings towards. However, as we see with 2015 Biff, he is a very bad actor, but has levels of thought and competency to his machinations, right? And even 1985 Biff... Uh, sorry, 1955 Biff, when he starts to realize that old Biff has brought him a genuine almanac from the future, well, whatever 1955 Biff thinks about that, it's working, and he needs to protect it, because this is how he's going to make his fortune. Yeah. And then alternate timeline, 1985 Biff, he realizes that he needs to kill Marty, and then hopefully Doc, because old Biff told him about this. So because he's so loud and aggressively apparently stupid, it's easy to underestimate somebody like this. And because they're a bad actor, it's unbelievably dangerous to underestimate somebody yes. like this. Yes. So that was kind of my overarching thought on Biff is like, no, you need to be vigilant even against someone like him because he will get you if you're not on your guard. I think there is something uniquely powerful about unbridled self-interest. <laughs> yes. Right? And this goes back to something we've talked about before about um, focus. Mm. Right? Because I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of visualization. And people are like, oh, what? You think it's magical? Like you can you know, visualize the future and then it will come into reality and people <laughs> mock it. Like people who, who care about science and, you know, who think, oh no, that the, there are laws to the universe and you can't visualize things into existence. Well, bullshit, right? <laughs> what is building a house? It's imagining something and then bringing it into existence. Visualization is the most powerful human. It's, it's, what, we, it's what we can do, mm-hmm. right? We imagine something and then we create it. Like that is the, the greatest human uh, advantage that we have in nature and why i say this is because when you are ruthlessly self-focused like biff when when your entire world is narrowed to only yourself and Mm. only your personal benefit you are going to notice opportunities to benefit yourself and then utilize them in a way that others will not be able to because we all have a finite amount of focus so if you are a genuinely good person who is focused on others as well and thinking about them that is taking some of your focus away. Right. Right. Yes. Which I think is a good thing and probably better for your mental peace and like for a lot of things. But the strength that Biff has is that he doesn't give a shit about anyone else. Yeah. Even his friends. Like mm. if they ever get in the way of what he's trying to do, 
then he just kind of slaps them down. And yeah. this is a trope of the powerful leader of the bad guy leader is like he he almost never treats his henchmen well well and i think super importantly he's he he's so terrible to women right yeah like that is a huge clue (laughs) to his intentions and his intentions are to use people including his henchmen and including women not to love people but there's a lot of people like that however what's different about biff is that he knows how to do it Yes. Well, <laughs> Which and that's is what the, makes him so dangerous. That's the interesting thing, right? This is why, I agree, this is why he's dangerous. It's not because he, because there's lots of people, like let's call them um, the incels, right? Who sit in their basement and they're incredibly self-focused. And the entire universe revolves around just this tiny little portion of their being, which is that women won't have sex with them. Involuntarily celibate, right? That's what they're, yeah. they're called. Biff's doesn't have that problem. No. But he appears that he does. Right. Which is why he's so dangerous. Like, he projects everything that an incel would project, so you think he's an incel. Right. But he's not, because he actually could back it up with figuring out how to problem solve and take on other people's perspectives. That's the thing. He he seems like he wouldn't be able to take on other people's perspectives, but he can. Right. Which is why he's so fucking sneaky. But he can only take other people's, or not only, he takes other people's perspectives for the sole purpose of, of enriching himself. Yeah. Like, he's like the perfect bully. Yes. In that sense. Yes. Right? I don't think uh, it's a it, it, it's a funny coincidence in history that he has kind of tufty orange hair. Right. <laughs> oh, no. It's, it's, <laughs> it's just an observation I <laughs> okay, make. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I think Trump is much less dumb than he lets well, on. Well, this is the thing. This is something that I've heard talked about by a lot of people, and I completely agree when we we do ourselves a disservice, I mean, this is like art of war, right? Yeah. We do ourselves a huge disservice and actually limit our ability to succeed when we underestimate our enemies. Never under it's better to under overestimate your enemy than underestimate your enemy. Yeah. And not saying that Trump is my enemy or but what I am saying is that when people mock Donald Trump, now mockery as we've talked about before is a massively This is what I mean. That psychological connection between, okay, because you present as unlikable, and I think I don't know how Trump presents as unlikable, for sure. I mean, I think (laughs) even he would know that. (laughs) Yeah. Because someone presents as unlikable, I'm going to assume incompetence in several other categories or characteristics a person might have. And and basically you say this person has no redeeming qualities because I I see them as irredeemable. Yeah. That is a psychological... Tripwire. It's in a total illusion yes. that tricks a lot of people, which makes it easier to be hosed by someone like Biff when they have some power. Yes. As opposed to being more on your guard. And I guess it was the movie slash Biff's projection of power and opulence is just all of these. It's like a crappy society with motorbikes, like Hell's Angels type people. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> like, like it would. That is totally Biff's kind of imagination of um, him running things as this is the way the world should be. So I guess it's just like a, it's like a, almost like a PSA, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Of right. Watch your own psychological illusions with attachments to people you don't like. Just because you don't like them doesn't mean that you can shovel them off into a psychological category of something you don't need to think about well and this is just the most common way of dealing with these things mm-hmm. mentally like i've done it 
where where you think someone is is incompetent because they've treated you poorly even mm-hmm. right like if you have a really high opinion of yourself yeah if someone slights you then yeah. then suddenly then, then when you're talking to people oh that person's useless yeah right or they're no good at what they do exactly. people have done this to me and and that's a very dangerous game to play right because when you do that to your enemies when you say oh they're then you're gonna you're not gonna watch for when they come yeah yeah, right. yeah, yeah, exactly. So watch out more. I, I think Biff is a not the most dangerous, but in that quadrant of hard-headed, hard-hearted, he is more hard-headed than most. Right. Right. And people would think that he's soft-headed. Yes. And that's the danger. Yeah. So it's at least a hard-headed, hard-hearted person you know is hard-headed, you can be more on your guard for. And he projects not, so it's like you fall into that trap. Anyway, the other thing about him that I thought was super funny, and we've talked about it a bunch before, Biff hates everybody, basically, but the person he hates the most is himself. Right. <laughs> so yes. the scenes in, like, there's hilarious scenes between Biff and Griff, like 2015 Biff, 2015 Griff, Grandpa, they yell at each other, they hate each other. And then even when old Biff goes back to 1955 Biff, they don't get along and young like, like old biff is like i can't believe this young biff is this shitty and yeah, young yeah. biff's like who the hell are you old man like so their own mannerisms are what they dislike the most and it's a funny callback to cartman yes right yeah but i think it's that's interesting though that it's a great motif of that all of these characters throughout culture the common denominator is that they're pretty unreflective reflective of themselves so that when they meet themselves they hate that person yes (laughs) you know whereas marty doesn't seem to hate himself when he meets himself (laughs) no he thinks he's a little bit pathetic right but he doesn't hate him and he thinks his own son is pathetic but he doesn't hate him which is funny so i did want to i know we talked a little bit about lorraine uh, marty's mom but there's something interesting i caught in the first movie we talked about how it's weird to see (laughs) How weird it would be to see a young version of your mom interested yes. in you. <laughs> right. That would yep. be very messed up. However, in 1985, so one of the early scenes of the movie, it's the the scene around the table. Marty's mom, Lorraine, says something around young women shouldn't pursue young men because it's improper or something like that. Right. Like there's a, a prudishness almost to her opinion on that matter. And then, however, you see it, though, because in 1955, she has... Uh, she's pursuing she's pursuing marty or calvin klein as he's named right so it's interesting then how you see how that opinion was shaped because potentially she garnered some shame around her own desires from her past right like 1955 lorraine is exactly what 1985 lorraine is chastising right (laughs) right it's projection she's chastising herself yeah and i think that there's an interesting cultural thing here that is definitely not as in the society now as it would have been in 1985, but it's around the idea of, I guess, young women getting to be the pursuers and the interest in their own desires. And I'm reminded a little bit of even even further back observation by Freud of, uh, I think he says something along the lines of female sexuality is an absolute wasteland to academia. Right. We know nothing about it. Yeah, you've you've mentioned this a couple of times. The shame around studying it. And it's partially about female sexuality, I guess, but it's also partially about 
being ashamed of your own desires. So then projecting them as wrong or evil and then trying to clamp down on them on others. So there's two kind of things there. That, that particular thing I think is the most, one of the most damaging um, things that can happen to a person. And I've seen it um, in people very close to, to me in right. my life where they've hated themselves because they've hated their desires. Mm. And, and they've lived with that for years of just despising themselves. And then it's ruining their relationships and it's hurting their life because they believe that they're evil and horrible and they hate themselves because of what they desire. Right. And I, th- like, I mean, I've talked to some of my gay friends about this and... Mm. Well, I think one of the biggest things about coming out is accepting that about yourself and no right. longer allowing yourself to feel shame about it, but instead I de- identifying it with it. Now, I don't want to. I'm. I don't understand sure. uh, that mentality, but I understand the mentality of feeling shame and and being told that my natural desires are evil and that and that I need to clamp down on them. Now, there's a fairness to that. Like, I don't want to go too far the other way, right? Mm. Because. I think if you just let yourself run rampant in whatever you desire and you're constantly just feeding the the self like satisfaction machine it yeah. can throw you off the rails. Like I'm a big believer in Marcus Aurelius's whole like moderation in all things of course. moderation. And so I don't I don't want to flip to the other side of this and be like, well, shame is stupid and why would you ever feel it? Cuz I think shame plays a very important role in in mitigating um other excesses hedonism right like like and and ask someone who has often just satisfied urges simply because they were they existed Mm -hmm. and and taken the easy path i think that's the easy path yeah but feeling shame over the desire itself yeah i think is bad yeah that's that's a very different thing than being ashamed of your behavior because you weren't able to be wise about something yes (laughs) right exactly so i agree I, i think you're right that the whole Marcus Aurelius, Aristotle, notion of moderation is crucial. And so that's why I get frustrated, I think, by either of the binaries mm-hmm. of the one extreme or the other, right? Either unbridled self-sacrifice or unbridled hedonism, I think, are probably equally psychologically unhealthy for a person. Well, and that's why it's not easy, right? Because mm-hmm. if it was categorical, if you could be like, well, no, this is wrong or this is right, or yeah. or this is how you do it or this isn't how you do it, then... <laughs> then that would make life a lot easier. But it isn't simply you should never feel shame right. for your sexual urges. Because like, like there's a, a great uh, movie, I think it's on Netflix, called Nymphomaniac. Mm, yes. And it's like this this woman's obsession with sex completely yeah. destroys her. True. Right? Yeah. And I mean, the, the uh, men's obsession with sex is a story <laughs> as old as time on how it destroys them, I, right? <laughs> sorry, i just like to point out how in a Back to the Future podcast episode, I'm going to have to make an additional spoiler for the movie Nymphomaniac. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. That's what you get at really that's true what you get fiction. Really true fiction. <laughs> no, that's a great point. I think that, that's that's crucial because you see how it destroys her in that regard. And so that's why I would like garner potentially good intentions to people who are trying to mitigate desire yes. let's say yeah. in the I young think people i think there are good intentions i do too i just think that it's a blinder so i mean and again i don't want to make this about our religious upbringings right. exactly i do think the most and damaging is the wrong word because it didn't rise to that level but the the most unnecessary thing foisted upon me as a young person was to be my uneasy to distrustful relationship of my own desires yeah. And then because then I didn't actually have 
I mean, I can count on one hand the number of conversations I had with my parents about sex right. as a teenager. I don't think that's the best way. <laughs> no, and I, I think I'll add to that from my own experience. I think the the issue there is also a generational one because I think these things ebb and flow. And like there, mm. there was a lot more puritanical views of sex, I think, in our parents, and particularly our mother's how- upbringings <laughs> yes. than our own. And there just wasn't as much access to information. But that's because I think those topics were so moralized. Well, also, our moms didn't have brothers. True. Right? And yeah. so that that's going to... Like, as much as we talk about, you know, female sexuality... That's a good point. I never really thought about that before. <laughs> My mom's brought that up before many times. I was like, oh, like, that will definitely change your perspective on these things. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I... Like you said, female sexuality is a wasteland that's what freud said yes i agree but also like we do fairly with a with a high degree of certainty know that male and female sexuality is very different mm, right yeah. i mean okay so let's like it's just even the physical act of sex is incredibly different for a man and a woman one of the things i read about why homosexuality male homosexuality is so disconcerting to society or mm. has been in the past is because ma- male sexuality in a homosexual relationship both partners get to almost experience sex like a woman would right right and so that gives them a knowledge that women can never experience uh-huh. so that is disconcerting to women uh-huh. and gives them that's the- what strap-ons are for yeah. <laughs> Well, you know what I mean. Yeah. But the point, I think, that the larger point that Lorraine is trying to make in the 1985 scene at the very beginning there is sex is more dangerous for women. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And, like, I mean, we even see that in the situation where she's basically being, well, she's almost raped by Biff. Yeah, it's true. And It was a little disconcerting to see how much of... It was just sexual assault. Yeah. I was like, oh my gosh, this is very intense. 100% what it was, right? So yeah, I guess my point on that is it is different and it's something we need to think about. But probably Biff wasn't talked to about about (laughs) boundaries and sex either. I think this is why I'm seeing the cascading effect of it in that the whole tenor of the way that 1985 Lorraine is talking about the, I mean, it's, it doesn't go too deep because it's back to the future, but it's like the tone of her voice is not conducive to any, like her daughter, for example, talk going to her to talk about her own feelings. Yes. Right. So that's why we've seen, I guess, probably such a rise in things like sex therapy and sexologists and people to talk to. I mean, maybe this would be too contentious for the school system, but we talk about sex ed, which is good, like the mechanics of it and the safety of it. But I don't know, like, where do you go for sex wisdom if you're a teenager? You know, like, I mean, they exist, there's experts, but it's not personal in a way. I guess really, I think it's, that's really a role that parents need to fill. And yeah, like that. And parents don't want to because I think, and this is, we don't have to talk about it like here. This is a deep criticism I have of something like evangelical Christianity is its very unhealthy relationship with the desires of people. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think that there is a huge cost to the moralization of sex that has gone on in Christian history. And that's not to say that there isn't wisdom. I think there is sex wisdom, but I just don't think like 
abstinence as a form of contraception is, I think, having your head in the sand just as much as, you know, free love Caligula style right, of right. it. And their consequences are different. And maybe why the more abstinence form has been more chosen, let's say, is because the consequences are much more psychological, whereas the hedonistic consequences are more, are more apparent into, yeah. into the world, right? And uh, so I think in the pursuit of mental health, I just, like, I, I feel bad for someone like Lorraine of that generation in the movie who had these feelings, and she didn't know how to express them, and it made her feel really awkward, right? But uh, Yeah, okay, but also, like, being a teen, I, I don't, I think you're so filled with hormones and uncertainty and your brain's still developing as a teenager. I don't care how great your parents are. You're going to feel awkward. Sure. Yeah, that's right? fine. So, But you can feel less awkward if you yeah. have. To me, it's honestly good lessons for future parenting. Yeah. Um, if we talk, are so blessed to, to have talk to young people or anyone out there who's listening. I don't know. Like this is, to me, I don't think we'll exhaust this topic right now. I think it's a perennial one that no, is we would, really we, interesting. Yeah. And it'd be interesting to talk to people about how they anticipate talking to... I'll put it to you this way. I think it's... Like, if you have kids who are too young to talk about sex right now, that doesn't mean that they aren't going to learn about it. And as a parent, you need to start thinking about how you're going to talk to your kids about sex. Like, now. Not when they're 15. Because by that point, they'll know have known about it for about eight years. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's an unfortunate reality of the technological world we live in. And you give 14-year-olds smartphones, they're going to show everybody at the playground what yeah. they want to on their smartphone. Yeah. Oh, okay. Just quickly. Principal Strickland. Yeah. I forgot about him. He is such a bad... Like, he's so anal. He's so... By the rules, he's a survivor in Back to the Future 2. We see him surviving on the steps. They closed the school down six years ago. They didn't open a new school. Like, what the hell? Mm-hmm. And then in the third one, we see Marshall Strickland, his great ancestor in 1885, uh, preaching discipline to his son. So we see where that lineage came from. <laughs> right. Because his great-great-grandfather was a Marshall. In passing, my thought on him is something like, he fills a role that is really good in a context, but contexts change. So if you're in the context where you need a hard ass, or you need a marshal, or there is a lawlessness, but I kind of see him as the type of person who their skills start to become less and less important as people become more and more civilized. <laughs> hmm. Like as people become more and more able to solve their own problems, because essentially he's the no-nonsense law. He's the law enforcement of the school, and he's literally the law enforcement of 1885 Hill Valley. But I think someone like that becomes more of fodder for parody when the problems that he's solving aren't really problems people are feeling anymore. Well, I guess like if I think about it now, he's a bit of a, just a petty tyrant too, right? Mm-hmm. Like, And I, I think we've exhausted the petty tyrant conversation to some degree, but I think it's important to point them out. Yeah, and I, so I want to give him his due. If you're in pure survival mode, so if you're in 1985 alternate reality, Biff is king, he's probably a good ally to have because he's wary and he's smart and he's a fighter and he's got rules and rules breed discipline, Mm -hmm. etc. But once civilization moves beyond survival, he becomes an object for humor. (laughs) Right. Because it's like once you reach the Marty stage of not having to be turning around and reacting to being called chicken the literal minded person becomes a little bit funny yeah the person whose mind can play with irony 
is always tickled a bit by the person whose mind can't. Right. And the person whose mind is too literal and can't be tickled by irony is can't comprehend irony. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's an asymmetric relationship. A relationship where if you understand irony, you understand the ironical and the literal minded, whereas if you're literal minded, you can only understand the literal minded. All right, and so as we wind down, I just kind of um made a bunch of notes on stuff that were indicative of back to the future, I think. Mm-hmm. So a lot of cultural things, a lot of foreshadowing things and the first one I wanted to just <laughs> riff on for a second because it's very funny is for a movie that's about time travel, ostensibly, there's not a lot of talk about the time travel no. or the paradox. I mean, the paradox are referenced. And for the most part, it's exactly what you're supposed to suspend your disbelief on. Right? Yes. You're not supposed to care about it. But there were a couple of things that I noticed in terms of time travel that I wanted to just bring up. Even though it's time travel, it's just the present for everybody there. And they actually, so the time travel itself needed a person to change, right? Like needed a person to go. So like, unless we're to assume that 1955, Lorraine and George were existing and then Marty and Doc show up, but they're existing at the same time. I guess the theory is that all time is at, happening at the same yes, time. Right, right, right. And so yet the only way, our brains can handle it as if an actual person goes there or at least a camera. Right. So we can see what's happening. Right. Right. So I thought that was kind of funny. And I know we've talked about that before. It's like, is it really the past? If you're experiencing it as the present, you can never experience the past or the future. No. no. So what would it mean to be in a different time? Right. Other than you would know it. Right. But then would you know it? Or would you, would would you, you think know? you went crazy? Or like, what do you and I right now think we're in t- 2020, but really we're, we're actually, in a simulation. exactly. <laughs> This one was funny. So in Back to the Future 2, they go to the future to save Marty's kids. But I was like, why? Why not just raise them differently? Right. <laughs> like you right. have that whole t- Like because it's the future instead of the past, it, you could go anytime and change that right. decision. Right? <laughs> right? So I was like, okay, that was just for a funny movie moment. Not because it's like the most intelligent way right. to stop his kids from doing that. <laughs> So then there's the moment in 2015 where Biff goes back, takes the time machine, goes back to 1955, gives 1955 Biff the magazine, comes back to 2015. It's like a 10-minute thing. But I was like, shouldn't 2015 have changed in the few moments they were still there after old Biff returns by the movie's own logic? Because presumably that 2015 would have been on the alternate timeline. Right. (laughs) Right? But it wasn't. It seemed like everything was just the same. (laughs) So I didn't understand that part. Um Marty can't make old Biff think he failed in giving the almanac to 1955 Biff. Then he won't go back in the time machine to give Biff the almanac. But they were already in 1955. So he would just wait for Biff to go back and give him the almanac. I don't know. Maybe that makes sense. I didn't think about it. (laughs) It's really funny. So in Back to the Future 3, it says on, on Doc Brown's tombstone that he died on September 7th, loved by... Clara, his, right. his yeah. love Clara, over $80. However, Clara Clayton, Clayton Ravine is named after her because in Back to the Future 3, Doc saves her from dying, thus interrupting the space-time right. continuum. But then if he actually had saved her without Marty's help or Would it time travel, why was it called Clayton Ravine still? <laughs> like, this doesn't make any fucking sense. That one slipped through there. <laughs> the movie writer's. Pen, hey? True. Um, so anyway, 
That was some of the time travel stuff I thought was funny, yeah. but I don't want to really focus on the time travel. Now, what I do want to talk about Back to the Future a little bit about is it's unbelievable foreshadowing. Like this whole movie, all of these movies are just foreshadowing for other parts of the movies. The clock tower, the black truck, Goldie Wilson, the mayor, and then when in 1955, Marty goes back and says, Goldie Wilson, you're the mayor. And he's like, that makes me want to be the mayor. Yeah, and then he <laughs> runs for mayor. Like that's such a back to the futurism yeah. happening. Dad struck by the car. Just all of that kind of stuff in Back to the Future 2 when Biff is watching the Clint Eastwood movie with the the metal under his jacket or right. his poncho yeah. that protects him from the bullets. And then uh, Marty using that exact same strategy at the end of Back to the Future 3. The DeLorean flashing 1885. <laughs> Right. When Marty's driving right. it in Back to the right. Future yeah. 2. Yeah. It's just like, oh, and so like, because it was flashed on the screen where the coordinates are, that's why it got sent there when the lightning went. Yeah. But like, if you're watching it for the first time, you're like, what is this? You know? So it's just like, there's all of these Easter eggs, the the Ooh La La magazine, the setups are so impressive, especially because obviously these movies were made pre-internet. So there wouldn't there wouldn't have been an internet community to be to, to picking these. You know, up. like those yeah. videos, like a hundred Easter eggs from Back to the Future, yeah. right? <laughs> right. Although now you obviously can't. Yes. Watch yeah. them, but it's just the impressive amount of self reference in Back to the Future. I think is one of the reasons why I love it so much. Yeah, because well, it, it's it's for a curious mind. It gives mm-hmm. a lot of opportunity for oh oh oh. <laughs> Yeah, Aha moment. It's also got all of these cultural references strewn throughout it. So in the beginning of Back to the Future, you see photos of like Ben Franklin and Einstein and Edison. So we get the sense of what Doc Brown cares about. Like off the top, Huey Lewis and the news. Uh, Ronald Reagan, the actor. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. Um, and then how in, like it's a total 80s imagination of right. what they thought 2015 could look like. Because uh, there's obviously Michael Jackson in there, so I, I actually wanted to just um, bring this up a little bit as a as a cultural thing. I remember when I lived in Korea, I met a guy who was a, the best kind of nerd. He was um, very social, but knew everything about nerd culture. Right, and he was from North Carolina, and he said something that I'll that has always kind of remained with me is that he said the 1980s were America's gift to the world for right. culture the rise of things like nike and the movies and the blockbuster and the shopping mall i mean say what you will about the commercialism of such things right the cheesiness and so it i've always kind of meditated a bit on the 1980s as a cultural staple and i think of things like new wave music like the music of the 80s and like et and the style and the kind of like emergence of a new kind of ethos of the world that is i mean I, I like to joke i think the 1980s were both the most important and least important decade all at the same time <laughs> and the least important because it was all like flash and jokes and arena rock metal bands and all that hair the hair arena rock you know bon jovi's type of thing but when you watch back to the future which is like a, a total distillation of the 1980s I just I love Back to the Future because I think it is the kind of love letter to the 1980s culturally. If you think about the music, like Huey Lewis in the news, if you think about the flashiness, even the 80s lingo, like how funny the is diners. The, yeah, the, you think about the way Marty talks throughout the whole. That's right. heavy, man. 
what does gravity have to do with it? <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing. Yeah. Because I think why it works so well is that there's an 80s feel in all of these eras. I don't know. Maybe I just am nostalgic about it because I was born in the 80s, but I don't remember it. Mm. Just the flashiness of it, the silliness of it. The, it felt like an era that started to not take itself too seriously. Right. With its counterculture of... But enjoyed itself. Yes, enjoyed itself. And I I guess, I think... Isn't that Gen X would basically be... <laughs> Marty would be Gen X. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Coming of age in the 80s kind yeah. of thing. Because Gen X, I guess, was people born in the 60s and we 70s. we came of age in the 2000s. Yeah. So yeah. We're, we're strictly millennials. So, yeah. <laughs> I probably think about this kind of stuff more than you. Yeah. But I love that part of Back to the Future's legacy is that I think it's a kind of time capsule of that decade. Right? Yes. Like, if you right. want to know what the 1980s were like... That's the movie. Watch. And... Our movies. Yeah, and and movies in themselves do this kind of weird thing to me where they, rem- like, it's weird now. When I watch movies from the 90s, I'm like, oh my gosh, I remember those things while they were happening, right? Now, obviously, Back to the Future, I don't remember the 80s when they were happening. Stranger Things kind of... Well, that's what it means. Like, yes. the 80s nostalgia stuff that comes out now is people lap that up. Yeah. But I think there's something more... Like, I guess the comparison I would make is Stranger Things to me is eating Korean food in Canada. But Back to the Future is eating Korean food in, in Korea. Korea. Okay. <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. there's just something so authentic of the source of the decade. And again, because I think it's, if you go with that motif of the 80s was America's gift to the world decade, I kind of like it. Mm. And I don't know how to put it any other way, other than there was like a, a simplicity and a happiness to that era. Optimism. Yeah. Which right? was fun. Marty's optimism. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. And and just so bookended by the power of love, Huey Lewis in the news, I think is so wonderful. Anyway, I want to point out a few Quotes. back to the futurisms <laughs> okay. that we've mentioned that are part of the charm. What is the charm of this? Okay. So, like I said, when he goes back and sees Goldie, he says he should be mayor. <laughs> and he's right, like, yeah. okay. What's his name? His name is Calvin Klein. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so the pop culture, the Vader and the Vulcan thing. Here's the, the decision making in Back to the Future is fucking crazy. Like, why are they doing this? Oh, I can, I got all the time I want. I can go back to 1985 and save Doc. I'll set it for 10 minutes before he's killed. <laughs> yeah. Why not a day? Yeah. Why, why not, not a week? Why not have some prep time? <laughs> <laughs> 10 minutes ought to do it. I'm on the other side of town. It's like, what the hell, Marty? <laughs> but like that rushed dialogue, they do this in Star Wars too. The rushed, cheesy dialogue is the charm. Well, and it gives you that, that feeling of suspense exactly. that you want in a movie. Exactly. In Back to the Future 2, Shark still looks fake when he sees like Jaws 19. Right, right. And that's such a great inside jab at Spielberg, <laughs> who is one of the producers of yes, Back to yeah. the Future. <laughs> well, it's like in The Office how Toby's... <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. His ability at the arcades makes him a good shot out west. Right. Part of that foreshadowing. His line in Back to the Future 3, all the best stuff is made in Japan. (laughs) Because 1955 Doc is like, why is it made in Japan? Yeah. It's like, what are you talking about? Just in a 30-year Well, that was when Japan was like on the rise. The 80s is interesting in that sense. Yeah. That's different. That's Um, global economics. mm -hmm. Uh, When he names himself Clint Eastwood for being, (laughs) because he goes back in time. 
here's another great foreshadowing from something that Doc says in the first Back to the Future. I want to go in the future. I'll be able to see who wins the next 25 World Series. So just more of this self-reference yes. that is so well encapsulated in that this classic line. Where we're going, we don't need roads. Yeah, <laughs> right. that is a classic line. The justice system works better in the future once they abolished all lawyers. <laughs> I thought that was funny. So on top of all of that... I think that Back to the Future is so charming. And this is the last point I'd want to make about it is that it's so charming to me and so wonderful because it reminds me of why I love movies. So even though the story is so in- encapsulating, I think that this is almost a perfect movie or these these three movies are almost perfect movies. And here's a couple of reasons why. At the beginning of the first Back to the Future, all, we don't even meet Doc, and yet we feel like we already know him because of all of the shots of his gadgets around the house. Right. Like the shots of the pictures of Edison and Einstein and Franklin, all of his gadgets, what they do. We are learning so much about this character without having him be on screen. Right. Like that is genius storytelling. Yeah. So smart. I think we referenced the apex of Cheesy, the apex of Camp. The flux capacitor, just having a hand wavy yeah. word. This this movie is the king of the hand wave. Yeah. Hey, it's just like I'll explain it away. <laughs> How does the science work? The flux capacitor, the theme song, the Back to the Future theme song is as iconic as Jurassic Park or Star Wars. I think it's yeah. like right up there with any of yeah. them. Even that piano light motif you get. Both the clock tower climax scene and the the chase in Back to the Future 2 tunnel scene, mm-hmm. they, they give me chills when I watch it because of the way that they build the suspense. And you talk about that that scene in the in the tunnel with Biff and Marty. Marty on the hoverboard. Yes, what, or, on the, or what, on the skateboard. Yeah, but, but in Back to the Future 2, the hoverboard goes back with them to 1955. Right, right. And I was just like, this is such perfect narrative. To have introduced something in your first act that's crucial in your third act. Yes. Right? Yes. And and the whole motif of like all of these timelines kind of getting mixed up together and Marty getting to use the hoverboard to escape Biff at the end in 1955 is just genius storytelling writing. Yes. Right? It's yes. like Chekhov's gun. It's yeah. Chekhov's hoverboard. <laughs> Don't introduce a hoverboard in the first act. No. Unless if you're it not going to use it in the third yeah, act. Yeah. And even in the in the third movie, the hoverboard is how Doc and Clara escape from the train. Like Marty sends the yes. hoverboard back. So the hoverboard travels with him through all of these eras. <laughs> it's just wonderful. Marty will trick Biff by calling him something behind him. And like Biff always did to George. So Marty gets Biff in the way Biff always would get George. In Back to the Future 3, this is a great Back to the Futurism. There's like an intense thing that Marty's telling Doc, and you hear the organ music be really ominous, but it's really just Doc leaning on an organ. Right, <laughs> so right. it's off, it <laughs> yeah. gets away. Marty has a nightmare in all three movies, and his mom figure <laughs> wakes him up every time kind of thing. And so just Eastwood Ravine coming in after it's, <laughs> thinks he crashed right. in there. Right. Um, in the, so the, the perfect tension the whole time, and the storytelling, I guess I just wanted to bring up, I realized I think why Back to the Future is so meaningful to me is that it's the best example of why I love movies. Not because it's the best movie, but why it's enjoyable. Why movies are such an important part of life. And like we spend so much time on this podcast talking about books and movies, but like for the gold within. And I guess 
for me, Back to the Future demonstrates the gold without, <laughs> I right. guess, if you will. Right. Why, like, why they're good at, in and of themselves. How how important movies are to life, right? Because we try to talk a lot about, about what's so important about life in these stories. And I guess, in in a way, this is the Marshall McLuhan movie where it's like the medium is the message. Right. The movie Back to the Future is the message of Back to the Future. The way it's made, because it's exciting, it's funny, it's charming, it's unlikely, it's silly, cheesy, hilarious, coincidental, crazy, smart, and well-narrated. So all of those factors come together to just give you such an enjoyable time watching it earnest, right? Right. It's so earnest, especially with Marty and Doc. Like you said, Marty has to be serious in his, well, <laughs> yeah, like Michael At J. Fox has to be sincere or yeah. he's not going to... Be Not convincing capture to us. us. Yeah. So this movie is why I love movies and why they're such an important part of life. So like we've talked about several times on other features of this podcast is that it's such a joy to go back to these stories and learn new things about them. And this is a new thing I say in quotations that I kind of felt like I already knew about Back to the Future, but it was revealed to me in this rewatch was Back to the Future, more than any other movie, reminds me why I love movies. Yeah. And what they do for life, you know? And so you think about it. Like, well, how many movies have you bring. watched? Oh. I and and how they bond you with other people. Right. Right. And, and how you can literally, well, there was a time in my life, not as much anymore, but where I could just sit around and talk about, well, I guess I do sit around and talk about movies yeah. for hours. Yeah, but, exactly. Uh, yeah. No. So, like, because we talk a lot about, okay, what is it about this story that makes life more interesting or good or thoughtful? And I love Back to the Future because it has that, like we mentioned. But it's also just, also, this is something worth doing in and of itself. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I don't know. Like, can you think of any other movies that do that for you? Like, I would say Star Wars too, but Star Wars has a lot in it. For me, I think the movies that do that are maybe a little bit different in the sense of my nostalgia is a little bit different than yours. So, like, right. the one that does that for me to the deepest sense is A River Runs Through It by Robert, the Robert Redford film. Or... Um, yeah, there's just a lot of films like that. Actually, weirdly enough, a lot of films with Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> and Brad Pitt. <laughs> but I don't know why. But oh, like, okay. like the best movies. Yeah, but I, I like. The, I guess I'm more modern in that sense. Like, I mm. mean, I love. Uh, I mean, even Nolan's films, right? Right. Uh, I, like, I have a deep nostalgia for Nolan films because mm-hmm. I grow grew up. Nolan was it, right? Yeah. So, but I. The role that movies play, I completely understand what you're saying. Like, it's not that, and I love Back to the Future, and I think, uh, I think it's iconic, and I don't think a lot of other films reach iconic status. Back to the Future is maybe tied with Star Wars as the movies I'm most excited to show to my future children, right? To remind, to let them know how great the world can be. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, agreed. So, yeah, I think. I think there's something special, and I think the special thing about art, right, and, and I do consider cinema art, and in these movies art, is that they are interpreted differently by everyone who experiences them, and yet they draw us together in that conversation. Yeah. And really, that's what movies are all about, is is giving us a feeling, mm-hmm. giving us, and, and in this case, like you said, and I agree, happiness, joy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like laughter yep that that's my final thought on back to the future is that i am left with nothing but good feelings from it and i can talk about why that's the case till the cows come home and you know i will (laughs) that's what i like to (laughs) do true but at the end of the day 
I will always watch Back to the Future because of how it makes me feel. And really, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Like, I at no point am I under any illusion that there's anything realistic no, <laughs> going on no. in any of these movies. And in fact, like, what the hell kind of plot thing. But but you'll always watch. No it movie well. is so rewarding if you sp- suspend your disbelief. No, and it gives you no reason to not suspend it. No, right? it doesn't. It doesn't try to. It's the camp of the '80s, ca- encapsulated. And to me, you know, I don't. I think it was in the '70s, maybe, when they sent Voyager out, and they put all of this, all the culture, human stuff, yeah. all the human culture, like Bob Dylan, the Beatles movies. If it was well, launched later, for okay, here's the 1980s, Back to the Future. Right. <laughs> here's what right. you get aliens to know about what this era of human life was like in, in the United States and yeah. Canada, kind of thing. So just joy, pure, unbridled, uncut joy I get from Back to the Future. So that's why it's so in my heart. Yeah. Because there's joy in your heart. <laughs> yeah. Joy, 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 joy <laughs> down, down in, in my heart. <laughs> anyway, do you have any other thoughts about Back to the Future that you haven't articulated thus far? I think uh, what's important to me about Back to the Future, like why I think it's so important to even our pop culture, like it, it it's in everything. It's, it's really somehow got into the minds of everybody. And I think it's also that reminder at the very end that the future's not written in stone. Oh, yes. Good point. That you can kind of get you a little bit emotional to think like you you can be the master of some mm-hmm. in some sense of your of your own destiny. And yeah, like w- as we're going through this time of global crisis, it's really important to not get under. And I don't know where we'll be at when we release this. Uh, hopefully closer to the end than the beginning. It's really important not to get under those things and say, well, this is just the way things are. And this is just, no, there are opportunities to change your future. There's always hope. While there, where there is life, there is hope, right? And yeah. so I think not only is Back to the Future joyful, it's hopeful. Yes. And, it, and yeah. thou mayest. Yeah, it right? leaves on such a hopeful, open-ended, the pages of your life are unwritten. Yeah. I think that's the line that, Doc uses even. And I think that is something we should all take away from Back to the Future <laughs> is that that 80s optimism yeah. of, look, you know, maybe things aren't exactly how you want them to be. Well, you can do something about that. Yeah. And I hope we all do. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. No, that's a good point. Great Scott, David. We've done it justice. We've done it justice. <laughs> that's heavy. That's heavy. <laughs> Anyway, this has been another episode of Really True Fiction. This is Luke Marty McFly Mason. <laughs> and David Parker. <laughs> or David Doc Parker. I yeah. don't know. Am I Doc? <laughs> I think you're more Doc. You'd be Einstein. <laughs> You'd be the Doc. I'd be the Doc. Okay. Yeah. And um, we are coming to you into the future. Yes. <laughs> we're, back. we're back. We're back from the future. Back. And uh, we're back. when you listen to this, we'll be in the past. Actually, you know, you know what? Technically, we are back to the future. Right, because we are behind it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Anyway, cheers, everyone. Have a good one. Bye.